Welcome, everybody, to the latest Truth and Consequences Zoom chat. And I am super excited today to be joined by my dear friend, old friend, uh, Dahlia Shindlin, who I've known, as we discussed before we went on the air, for 36 years. True story, 36 years. Uh, and uh, Dahlia, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. It and I think, I, I think you set a record today. I think you've been on this Zoomcast more than any other person. I think you've been on three times <laughs> over the years, which just shows I'll have, to, I'll have to rein myself in. <laughs> exactly. Uh, anyway, Dahlia is here because we want to talk about what is happening in Israel these days, because there seems to be something of a constitutional crisis emerging. Now, when I say constitutional crisis, this is a bit of a uh, misnomer, slightly, because there is no real constitution in Israel. However, as Doug explained to me before we went on the air, there are constitutional issues that ha- that the Israel has. So can you talk a little bit about sort of what is happening right now? Why is this crisis with the judiciary in Israel emerging? And why is there this giant protest movement that has emerged as well? Yeah, thanks, first of all, for having me. And thanks, everybody, for joining. Uh, I guess I'll start with the most immediate uh, you know, trigger for all of this, which is that Israel elected a new government on November 1st, 2022. And the new government, it took a long time to form. It took about two months for a coalition to cobble itself together under former long-running and now current Prime Minister Netanyahu, who is the leader of a right-wing party named the Likud. And his coalition partners, there were four parties together in the coalition. One of them subsequently split up after the election. So now there's actually five and a faction. So it gets complicated. But this is a very, very right-wing party. And one of the, um, I would say, major kind of themes of the right in Israel in recent years, and I'm going to argue that it goes back as a good starting point with longer antecedents, it goes back really to 2009. This is not a new phenomenon, but the right-wing has been very committed to trying to restrain the authority of specifically the Israeli Supreme Court. Uh, And particularly, they are trying to restrain the Supreme Court from judicial review, which means the court's authority to rule that a law is unconstitutional or has violated uh, constitutional rights. I mean, they don't always use that term. We'll explain why. But that if a law has violated rights that are spelled out in Israel's basic laws, which arguably have higher status, maybe, maybe not. Some of this is left open. But if there's a law that violates those rights, civil rights and human rights that are spelled out in those two basic laws from 1992, the court has struck down legislation. And of course, the court exercises judicial review over executive decisions as well. And the right wing does not like this one bit. And I would say the issue became increasingly um, visible from the period between 2009 and 2013. Okay, it's not that recent. But that was a Knesset term in which the Knesset began trying to pass a series of legislation that was deemed illiberal, legislation that seemed to present a major challenge to some of those basic democratic rights. And petitioners began taking them to court. The court certainly didn't strike them all down. But the Knesset didn't even like that they were exercising judicial review, hearing some of those cases and sometimes striking down pieces of those laws. And the pressure on the court simply grew over the course of the decade skip ahead. Now we have a completely right-wing coalition with some very extreme right-wing parties. And really, they prioritize before anything else, their commitment to making a series of changes that goes way beyond restraining judicial review, although it starts with judicial review, restraining it, making it almost impossible for the judge, for the justices to exercise judicial review and strike down legislation. And if they should manage to do it, essentially giving the Knesset Uh, And basically, the government itself, almost an automatic ability to override a judicial strike down of legislation. That is one of the flagship aspects of the reforms they want to do, but it doesn't stop there. They want to uh, have stack the Judicial Appointment Committee with political figures, whereas it is currently a balance of Supreme Court justices, uh, some political figures and some members of the Israeli bar but they want to have essentially an automatic majority for members of the executive power, the coalition, um, in order to choose the justices that they think will be more amenable to their way of thinking. They want to politicize all of the legal advisors to the ministries so that these advisors would essentially be political loyalists to the minister rather than independent legal thinkers. They want to split and weaken the position of the attorney general. They want to uh, completely cancel one of the legal bases that the court has sometimes used to review mostly executive action, which is called the reasonability test. Does something pass the test of being reasonable? This prompted our most recent crisis. But all of this, this entire package of 
uh, changes, reforms. I mean, there's a big debate now about terminology because many people here see it as essentially an attempt to crush the independence of the judiciary in Israel, which traditionally has been very independent, and thereby remove what is essentially the only real check on legislative power. But by extension, you have to understand the Israeli political system, the Knesset, the legislature is controlled by a parliamentary majority that makes up the coalition. Coalition, in turn, is are the parties that uh, from, from which are chosen the executive branch. So the executive branch represents parties that have an automatic majority in parliament, which means the executive basically controls the legislature. We don't have a clear separation of powers. The judiciary is the only real check in power institutionally in Israel, other than elections. But as I would argue, you can't measure democracy only by elections. Sure. I mean, I think that's the key point, right? This is an effort to basically remove this check in legislative power. And, you know, for those who think of this from an American standpoint, it's as if the the Biden administration, along with Democrats in Congress, tried to basically um, prevent the judiciary from reviewing laws that were passed by Democrats in Congress. I mean, that's basically yes. it. And, and of course, we don't we would need that because we have this bicameral system, which, of course, most countries don't have. Um, now, here's the real question I think a lot of people would ask. I mean, you said that this was something that kind of that that has began through 2009. Bibi kind of jumped on this around that time. Um, how much of this has to do with the fact that Benjamin Netanyahu uh, has been indicted, was on trial, is trying is to, on trial, is on trial. Is a try trying to he's still on trial. That's crazy. He's still on trial. It will take a long time before we have a decision in those cases. You guys have long. We should we should clarify. He's on trial for corruption. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And he still won the last election. Um, So the question, I guess, is how much of this is is and we know that Benjamin Netanyahu was perhaps the most opportunistic politician, you know, ever. (laughs) Certainly, he's in the top ten. And um, that how much of this is really an effort for him to protect himself, while at the same time giving the right wing members of his coalition and uh, sort of an issue on which they can, you know, get uh, get their teeth into. Yeah, I mean, it's both. You know, it's true that he is currently standing trial on three different counts of corruption, three different cases. Um, and there's no question that Netanyahu, while I argue that this assault on the judiciary began around 2009 in its current form and what I call a top down political form driven by ministers and, and political parties, He actually portrayed himself during most of that time for most of the last decade as the restraining force, saying, well, these are my coalition partners. They want to advance these attacks on the judiciary, but I'm going to be the responsible adult. I believe in an independent judiciary. His party, the Likud, was one of the earliest supporters in the history of the state of Israel for an independent judiciary, the forerunner of the party, uh, Zeb Jabotinsky, and of course, the legendary leader of the party in the the post-independent years, Menachem Begin were some of the most eloquent proponents of the the law, the independent judiciary and judicial review itself. So they thought there was every need to check government power in Israel. Now Netanyahu traditionally upheld something like that attitude, but he did nurture the coalition uh, partners he had over the years. And he certainly cultivated figures inside his own party who take the approach that the judiciary is some sort of irritating, unelected, maybe conspiratorial group, simply trying to overrule the voice of the true people. And he let those forces get stronger and stronger, both within his party and among his coalition partners, to the point where some of the traditional members of his own party defected and left for other parties and are some of the most vocal critics of this policy right now. Now, Netanyahu himself really took a U-turn when he was indicted. Or I should say more accurately, when the attorney general announced that he would be indicting him, which was something that the country was essentially being prepared for over the course of late 2018 and most of 2019. In late 2019, the attorney general announced that he was preparing and he had decided to indict him. And then Netanyahu, frankly, went on a rampage and began making really long, rambling ad hominem attacks on the judicial branch. I mean, focusing it mostly on the the state prosecutor and the police investigation team and the police chief, these were his appointees, we should point out. Mm. I have been asked if you know, the charges are somehow suspicious because they're coming from political opposition. No, Netanyahu has been in power that whole time and these were his personal appointees, but he nevertheless began attacking them as being in some sort of collusion with deep state forces, a term he only rarely carefully uses, but he has used that term. He of course assumes they're all working together with the media to slander right. his good name. And he became much more outspoken about this 
after 2019 and particularly during 2020 when his trial opened. And since then, he has simply had no kind of restraint on making common cause with those very far right-wing parties. And he has also taken proactive measures to ensure that the most extreme right-wing parties who have an extreme right-wing agenda on other areas, it's not just about the judiciary, and I hope we'll talk about why they're, they're, they're uh, you know, mounting these attacks. Um, he has actually nurtured those forces and encouraged them to unify in ways that would ensure that they have strong electoral results uh, for his own sake, because he wanted to have you know, strong and viable coalition partners. But there's no question that he has lost any sort of restraint he once had. And I'm, I, I increasingly question whether it was ever correct to portray him as some sort of ideological moderate who was unfortunately right. tied to these right-wing politicians. My feeling has been that it doesn't really matter what's going inside, what's going on inside his heart of hearts. What matters as a political leader is what you do, which kind of political forces you cultivate, yeah. tolerate, promote, and then what you say yourself. And so he has definitely taken the lead on this in recent years. Now, is it directly connected to his trial? I think yes, in the sense that he will do anything to stay in office. Uh, because I think as long as he's in office, for one thing, there is no law that says a prime minister cannot serve while he's standing trial, which is why he's currently prime minister and standing trial. Uh, the question about you know the, the, the big crisis we had last week is whether a minister can serve after being convicted or even indicted. And that's a different question. We can get back to it if we want to. But I think he thinks as long as he's in power, he will somehow stay in power. And I think he also has come to believe that he has ways of masterminding the political system that will in ways that will keep him in power in addition, some of the reforms that his party and well, his government are trying to make could also weaken the cases against him, or some believe he even is trying to get out of the cases altogether. Right. For example, splitting the position of the attorney general, possibly appointing someone who doesn't really agree with the charges or might drop them. One of the coalition partners ahead of the elections published a very detailed plan for these attempts to crush the judiciary. And one of the main items was to completely cancel one of the crimes that he's being charged with, um, <laughs> which is fraud and breach of trust. Now, he claimed, I would never do that because, you know, first of all, he thinks that's going too far and he doesn't want it to look like he's openly right. trying to end his own right. trial. But it's all in the air. And so I think, you know, among legal experts, and I should say, I'm not a lawyer, I'm a political scientist, but among legal experts, I don't think there's one straightforward answer about how he's trying to wriggle out of his trial. Uh, in the past, he has been accused of wanting to pass an immunity law that would shield him as prime minister yeah. from being under an uh, indictment standing trial. He has said he wouldn't do that. But I think his main preference is simply to remain prime minister. And by consolidating government power, remember, he's removing any checks on executive power and right. he's making a much less liberal society where freedom of speech and expression, which are not grounded in Israeli law only by Supreme Court precedent, um, all these civil society and freedom of speech and putting pressure on the public broadcaster. I mean, he's trying to create a situation in which there's simply a lot less information and a lot less freedom for civil society to express, you know, political challenges. Well, let me ask you this because, you know, you wear many hats. You're a political scientist, you're a political consultant, you're a columnist at Haaretz, but you're also writing a book on Israeli democracy. Um, and one thing I am struck by is that this seems to be, and correct if I'm wrong, the not just the most religious, most right-wing government in Israeli history, but also the least wedded to basic democratic norms. And I've always kind of said the sense that Israel um, is, there is a culture in Israel um, of respect for democracy. And you mentioned about Likud having been some, one of the most eloquent defenders of that. And, and of course, a lot of the former Likudniks who, you know, people like in the in the sort of previous generation, um, I think have abandoned that now in part, it seems because of his lack of fealty to democracy. Not so, just that it seems, they have said it exactly. Right. They have said it themselves. Yeah. So, so what is going on here? Is this, I mean, is this a larger trend in Israeli society um, to no longer view democracy as an essential element of Israeli politics and Israeli society? Well, I want to give you um, a sneak preview of the basic analytic you know, themes of the book, which is that I think it's uh, a very common understanding of Israel, your, the version you just explained. And there are some arguments for why you could make that case. But I think a very close and honest reading of Israeli history, especially in the early years of statehood, even in the pre-statehood years, shows quite a compromised understanding of what democracy actually is. And in the first year, the first decades of statehood, 
I think it's indisputable, frankly, that these were the least democratic years of Israel's history. Why was the Likud so supportive of an independent judiciary? Because they didn't think there was enough opportunity as the opposition right. to even have their say. They thought that the central party of David Ben-Gurion, the Mapai party, was way too powerful. By all accounts, it was a completely party-dominated system everywhere, in civil society, in the quasi-governmental agencies that had a lot of control, including the main labor federation, um, even a tight relationship between the party and the army at the time. And there was no institutional restraint. Now, in 1953, something important happened, which is that the Supreme Court actually um, you know, uh, issued a ruling that grounded freedom of expression for um, a, a newspaper that the government had, that the interior minister had tried to shut down, thereby establishing uh, a judicial precedent for supporting freedom of speech. And I think that we take these things for granted, but we don't realize that that's because it simply wasn't there beforehand. The other thing I would point out is that, first of all, in terms of Israeli politics, it was not a particularly democratic time. Um, but also, Israel was running a military uh, government that controlled about 15% of its citizens at the time, Arab citizens, under martial law. And that wasn't just during wartime. It went on for almost 20 years, or actually 20 years, depending on exactly when you consider the end date. Now, the moment that military government ended, uh, Israel began the occupation. So Israel has never in its entire history not controlled some people, whether it was their own citizens or not their citizens, under martial law regime. Martial law is nothing like civil law. It is not democratic governance. It practically doesn't make any pretensions to democratic governance. Um, now, you can talk about the aspects of, you could challenge me on that and say, but Arabs had the right to vote. They did have suffrage, but they were under a completely coercive uh, military rule. So I would say it wasn't a free environment. They certainly didn't have their rights protected. And so Israel, I think from the very beginning, accepted a situation of democracy with you know enormous holes gouged out right in the middle. And that became normal for Israelis. There's another significant challenge to talking about Israel's historic commitment to democracy. And that is a little bit harder to see, but it's very present for most Israelis. And that is a conflict between the theocratic basis of statehood and the law for a big chunk of Israeli society. And that's the religious communities, particularly the ultra-Orthodox. And at this point, you know, streams of the uh, what we call the national religious groups, which is essentially equivalent to modern Orthodox Jews. Now, there's a very complicated history of how they felt about Zionism. But let's just say when the Supreme Court was established in 1948, the chief rabbis boycotted the ceremony and they said it should be a day of mourning because they did not agree with the whole concept of secular law. And I would argue over the course of decades, they never really came around to full acceptance of the authority of state institutions and civil law. They see it as something, I should say civilian law, they see it as something that is instrumental and the, the, the aim that they are trying to reach is to have a religious society, a Jewish religious society, society right. that follows Jewish law. And in various ways, from the very beginning, uh, David Ben-Gurion made concessions to uh, place certain aspects of public and private life under religious law, which is now dominated by a rabbinate that is itself dominated by the most strict and very small minority of Israeli Jewish law and interpretation which means that every person who is Jewish in this country, for example, if you wanna get married and be recognized by the state, you have to make this very personal move in your life under a very, very extreme and uh, limited religious community. Let me just point out that one more thing that in the coalition politics of Israel, the parties representing those very orthodox communities always have kingmaker power. They haven't been in right. every single coalition, but most of them. And so they are a small minority, of the population, but they have disproportionate power throughout Israel's history, which also rather belies the argument that the judiciary is somehow uh, evil because it only represents a tiny minority of you know, a number of justices and the majority express themselves in the legislature. That is not how our coalitions have worked over the years. Well, let me, let me, okay. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, I've, I've always made this point to people that as a, as a Jew, I have probably more um, right as a Jew in America than I would have if I lived in Israel. I mean, to some extent, uh, you know, as far as how I get married, for example, if I were to be married. As far then. as how you get married, how you get divorced, and how, how you get, get divorced, of course, can affect things like custody arrangements and Absolutely. financial arrangements, but also in the simple fact of, you know, I, I assume that your listeners have environmental consciousness in their minds as well and climate crisis. I sold my car a couple of years ago. If I want to go anywhere outside of the city on the on a Saturday, I have to spend hundreds and hundreds of shekels or like let's say 100 200 just to go you know 12 or 15 kilometers away 
because the ultra-Orthodox not only control personal family law, but they control many aspects of public life, including right. not allowing transportation on Sabbath. So it's frankly, in my feeling, it's, it, you know, since I sold the car, I realized it's kind of a, a form of extortion, um, but it certainly isn't freedom. Well, but also I want to step back to your point about democracy and, and look, you could, you could argue, and I think it's actually a reasonable argument to make, that America was not a democracy until 1965. The passage. Of I would make that argument. Uh, however, you know, there was a tradition of democracy in this country, even if that democracy was horribly flawed and excluded lots of people from it. But there was a certain tradition that has and certain norms that were accepted, um, whether it's, for example, one like accepting uh, political defeat, which we saw upended in 2020. So what we've seen in the U.S., I think, is a sort of a lack of fealty to those basic norms. And that kind of feels like what's happening in Israel. Even I, I take all your points, obviously, about Israel being a very flawed democracy for, for obvious reasons. But it feels as though something different is going on, as in the U.S., where you have people in positions of power who no longer feel that they need to adhere to these longstanding democratic norms or even just the rhetoric of democracy. Is that, that, is that correct, do you think? I mean, yes, I don't want to trivialize what's going on now. It really is a sea change. But I would say that what's happened up until now has has allowed this to happen. Sure. Because even, you know, the difference between the U.S. and Israel is a very fundamental difference. Not a, it's not like a, a you know, cure all. But Israel has no constitution, as we started to mention before. And I'm not sure if we finished the conversation. Israel refused to pass a constitution, even though it was supposed to pass one based on U.N. Resolution 181 in 1947, basically creating a Jewish and an Arab state. Um, Israel was supposed to have elected a constituent assembly that would pass a constitution. And the uh, UN resolution also specified what should be in the constitution, which is all of the full range of things you would expect to be in a democracy, equality of all citizens, all the basic civil and human rights. And Israel wouldn't do that. And it never, it still hasn't done that. It has passed a series of basic laws. The vast majority of them are simply institutional arrangements. And it took Israel until 1992 to pass its first laws that, uh, enumerated and stipulated some human and civil rights, but those were only two out of a package of four, which is why we still don't have some of the most basic human rights enshrined in our uh, laws that are either basic laws or even regular laws. And I would say the most glaring absence would not have been in any of those four laws, and that is equality. Israel has not committed itself to the equality of all citizens in any law, not a basic law, not a regular law. And that is, you know, would it solve everything? No. But I think it does indicate what you're trying to point out about America is that there were flaws and we knew the aspirational direction from the beginning yeah. that America was trying to take. And Israel has never committed itself to that. And I think that you can, you know, you can uh, justify it or you can criticize it even before I get judgmental about it. It is certainly one of the most outstanding features that at every point when Israel and, and the Israeli public and uh, the parliament and the government and the Supreme Court have debated the concepts of equality. And the only institution that has really been able to commit to the equality of all citizens as a critical feature of democracy has been the Supreme Court. And now that's, that's, that's the most main institution under assault by Netanyahu's government. So let me ask you about this. I mean, I mentioned earlier, this is a very right wing government. What, uh, how, how much support does this government, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about the government, it's not just right wing on the judiciary or right wing on settlements and you know, the question of the Palestinian rights, it's it's right wing on things like LGBTQ rights, which seem to be relatively popular in Israel and seem to have created quite a backlash. So I guess I'm kind of curious, how much support does this particular government have? And to what extent, I've heard this argument made, is Netanyahu almost sort of riding the tiger with this particular government in the sense that they are much more radical and right wing than even he would want to be, ideally? Well, again, I think it's becoming less helpful to try to figure out who he truly is deep, True, in, yes. deep inside yes. his soul, because we see what he's doing as leader. Yes. Uh, you could say it's circumstantial, but it almost doesn't matter. Um, in terms of how, uh, how whether Israelis support this, I mean, you know, as he keeps saying, and his coalition partners keep saying, and the Likud figures keep saying, majority rule, the public voted for us, the majority has had their, has had their say, and we can't let this place turn into a, uh, you know, a, a judicial dictatorship or a minority-ruled society, which, as I've pointed out, or I've tried to argue, that is a very misleading approach because Israel has been very much dominated by minority parties. Right. But Absolutely. in fact, if we're actually talking about the majority, and I do want to critique the concept of why this is such a dangerous narrative, but in any case, the, his coalition parties barely got 
50% of the votes, okay? And the reason why the other opposition parties uh, were not able to challenge them is because several of their parties on the side of the opposition parties simply fell under the threshold needed to enter the Israeli parliament, which is 3.25% of the entire vote. So that's a fairly high threshold. It's the highest it's ever been in Israel. It started out as 1%. And two of those parties were not able to get in. They just missed the threshold by a very small amount. So the way that translates into parliamentary seats, of which there are 120, it, basically Netanyahu's parties achieved 64 out of 120 seats, which in the current environment was a major victory for him. But A, he doesn't enjoy some huge majority of the population in terms of the electoral results. And then when we ask about where the public is on these specific issues of the attack on the judiciary, in fact, I think it's a little bit embarrassing for him because survey after survey shows that the majority of public supports the judiciary on right. these issues. Right. 55 to 57 or even 58% consistently support judicial review in survey research that has been going on as tracking surveys since 2010. Those are not my surveys. If you think I'm biased, it's not even mine. These are surveys from the Israel Democracy Institute. They've been tracking them year after year. And in fact, the number, the percentage is even edging upwards over the last number of months. And even when we had a big crisis last Thursday, when the Supreme Court ruled very controversially for the, for the, for the government, that one of Netanyahu's key allies, one of his most stalwart supporters, could not serve as minister because he had been convicted twice of corruption, one twice. time very recently. Not once, but twice. Um, you know, there was a poll that was done by the right-wing newspaper that used to be associated with Netanyahu and was once considered his own mouthpiece that was founded by Sheldon Adelson, who is no longer with us, but the survey for that newspaper showed that 65% of Israelis supported the Supreme Court's decision to reject that person's you know, right to serve as a minister after these corruption charges. So I, I think it's getting to be a little absurd that the government keeps arguing that the public is with them on the issue of the judiciary. It is true, there is no question that the Israeli public is very right-wing when it comes to the issues of the Palestinians, uh, the occupied territories, which they practically don't even use the term occupation anymore. Over 60%, about 63, 64% of Israeli Jews consider themselves to be right-wing. If you balance that in with the Arab uh, citizens of Israel or Palestinian citizens of Israel, we're talking about over 50% who are right-wing altogether. Um, but that relates mostly to militant and expansionist attitudes with relation to Israel's control over the territories. Right. And when it comes to issues like LGBT, this is you know obviously a very bitter point of contention right now, because one of the things that the coalition partners who are on the very far right of Netanyahu's party have said is that they want to you know, amend the anti-discrimination law in Israel that would, in ways that would basically allow discrimination against minority groups, which many saw was uh, directed specifically against the LGBT groups because there is a faction within the government that is openly anti-LGBT and they say so. And it's really a very toxic kind of rhetoric. But of course, anyone could be discriminated against if the law allows it, not just LGBT. Me as a woman who arguably, given the religious dominance in Israeli society, we already you know, are under not exactly uh, feminist norms when it comes to the areas where the religious have control, but people with disabilities, you know, um, people of Mizrahi background, Arabs, left-wing political dissenters or any political dissenters. So if you're going to take that path, you end up discriminating against everybody. And, you know, just to go back to this concept of the majority, I have to say this because there is such a, you know, a, a thematic, it's like, you know, the government has been hammering home the idea of the majority voted for us, we have a majority. Okay, we all know democracy is not a matter of unrestrained majority rule. We all know that elections are not the final word in democracy. There's always check and balance on power. But any one person who voted with the majority and voted for one of the parties in the coalition, if that government should pass a law that discriminates against that person, that person's no longer in the majority. Yeah. So it almost, it just doesn't matter. And it's that's exactly why we need constitutional principles and a court that can adjudicate them. Yeah, it's interesting. I keep saying, I keep thinking of parallels between this screwed up democratic system and America's screwed up democratic system in which, you know, for example, we've had two presidents the last 20 years who lost the popular vote, right? I mean, you have states where, like Wisconsin, where Democrats regularly win, get the most votes, and yet are underrepresented in, in, the, in the legislature because of the way the rules. Now, it's different in Israel. I understand that. But it's really hard to argue that, I mean, Likud got how many seats in the last election? 32. 32 out of 120. Uh, yes. Off the top of my head, that's what? Uh, not even, 
Is it a twenty nine percent roughly? Twenty nine percent. Yeah, kind of hard to argue that's a majority. <laughs> like it's of course I it's not a majority. But Israel, together. I mean, but in fairness, no party in Israel has ever had a majority. Of course, yeah, because but it is a very fragmented. Is very system. low, right? Yes, but he would argue that his allies, you know, that that when people voted for either the religious Zionist party, which got ten point eight three percent of the votes and currently holds fourteen seats, and the two ultra orthodox parties. Uh, which together hold, I believe, about 20 seats now or 19 seats or something. I mean, that people uh, knew that those parties were, lo- were Netanyahu loyalist supporters. And of course, they, they pretty much did uh, know that because those parties have expressed their loyalty to Netanyahu and you know sworn to go only into his coalitions and no right. other coalitions over the years, especially in recent years. So it's, you know, to the extent that voters are thinking about this stuff, then they generally understand the system. You could argue that they were voting for Netanyahu and for this kind of a government. However, the issue of the judicial reform is much more complicated because the Likud made every effort throughout the campaign period to say nothing. And I just recall listening to interviews with various figures, uh, candidates on the Likud list, you know, uh, of their legislative list, being asked direct questions, you know, and just saying, please tell us what your plans are with relation to the judiciary, because we all know this has been a big issue. And then just shamelessly getting out of it. To their credit, the only party that did openly express their plans for the Israeli judiciary was religious Zionism, the very extreme Kahanist Jewish supremacist party, which published a very detailed plan with extreme versions of what we're seeing now. And in fact, one of the most prominent figures from that party is currently the chair of Israel's Constitution Law and Justice Committee. Oh, great. And how many seats did they get in the last election? 14. 14, which is a lot in Israel, yes, but basically, they're the second biggest party in the coalition. Right. 11 or 12 percent, basically. No, the, it's, it's actually 10.83 percent. It just happened to work out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I should have known not to not to try to do math with somebody as, as experienced in, in, in mathematics as you. Uh, anyway, I want to well, get it's to, not mathematics. It's just, you know, they, they, we, we do have enough of a transparent system that the Central true. Election that's Committee true. publishes percentages and mandates. And that's how it worked out. Um, I want to get to the protest again, but I guess a question that I can't help but think about here is, you know, in America, I, I've been talking for a while that that Trump is such a malignant force in American politics that he almost um, he's sort of sui generis in some respect. And in a way, like his presence upends our normal political incentive structure so that if he was not here anymore, for whatever reason, uh, that it would just create a whole different dynamic within the Republican Party and, and American politics. Um, would you, could I make a similar argument about Benjamin Netanyahu, that if he was no longer a presence in Israeli politics, that you'd have a very different kind of politics in Israel? Well, first of all, I mean, we could have this argument about the Republican Party in the U.S. I think there's very little doubt that many, many elements in the Republican Party have really adopted his approach, you know, locks, uh, uh, hook, line, and sinker. And there has been a similar process in the Likud over the years. Listen, the current justice minister is a Likud figure who has been anti, you know, against the judicial branch since roughly 2009, maybe even before. But I remember him being a co-sponsor of some of the most undemocratic legislation that that Knesset tried to and pass, and some of the bills, some of the bills did pass into law. And he was a co-sponsor, and then he's been a critic of the judiciary from an early stage. And there's a reason why he became a Netanyahu crony and a loyalist and was promoted and advanced and you know, essentially has remained in Knesset to the point where he's now the justice minister. The other figures in the Likud, the most, some of the most prominent ones are exactly like him. And they are Netanyahu loyalists. And so even if Netanyahu goes away, they're not going to change what they've come to stand for overnight. True, but it feels like what I mean, the thing with Trump is that he... he... <sighs> I guess the thing is that he it's difficult for, for example, Republicans, I don't know, would be saying like in the last election, no Republican except for Kerry Lake refused to um, acknowledge defeat. And I feel like if, if Trump was no longer in the conversation, you wouldn't have this threat of, Dem- of Republicans basically refusing to acknowledge that, uh, you know, what election results. So I guess in a sense, I feel as though he does he sort of uh, I'm trying to think of the right word for it. He subverts the, uh, our politics in a way that is very much around him. And I feel like Netanyahu has a similar sort of way because he's so cynical and so willing to make to to have, he has no moral principles and is so willing to make any kind of compromise to sort of keep himself in power, which yeah. a lot of politicians do. But he feels more seems more extreme with him. 
that it I, feels mean, I don't disagree with your characterization yeah. of Netanyahu, and I don't want to underestimate how influential he's been. I mean, just the fact of being in power from 2009 until now with only one year break makes him by definition very powerful. And he has an inherent, you know, the characteristics of a populist leadership of trying to consolidate power and trying to dominate the headlines at all points. So he is very influential. I agree with you. However, I really think it would be like a very partial picture to hmm. fail to see how many other forces have been converging for this moment yeah. to happen. I mean, again, one of the arguments that I'm looking at, and I started to, you know, I alluded to them or we talked about it briefly earlier, is that there have been communities that were skeptical or had an instrumental understanding of law and constitution and democracy in Israel from the very beginning. You could say they were the ultra-Orthodox forces in the beginning, but once the settlement movement started, they had a very instrumental and selective relationship with the law because they often tried to break the Israeli law to establish settlements even when the government was against it. Right. And then, you know, trying to drag the government forward and the government eventually went along and maybe even with some enthusiasm and maybe not even under only under Likud governments. Um, so there's that. And then, of course, the security establishment for many of the first decades lived completely outside the law under the sh in the shadows entirely. Um, and, you know, that's a, maybe a thornier issue for now, but there have been plenty of situations in which the security establishment takes the law into its own hands right. or, you know, frankly, doesn't pay too much attention. So we have all these communities in Israel that, you know, we're perfectly happy to see the judicial branch weaker, weakened. And the fact that Netanyahu kind of came along and embraced the project due to his corruption charges basically means they all fell into place together. Right. I think that's a crucial point. I think, you know, I, 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 I think Trump has empowered these groups on the right, on the far right, that per perhaps would not have been as powerful if not for Trump's rise. And the same thing can be said about Netanyahu. I think it's actually a good way to look at it. That, And the question then becomes, after these people leave the scene, what do these groups do? Do they remain as empowered? Do they do they shift their political, you know, uh, 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 beliefs in order to for, for political reasons or to get elected. I mean, I just think it's a, we, we don't know the answer to that. Um, but let me just jump on a different question. Somebody asked about the percentage. Yeah, shift I saw that. It's a very good question. Now, the two parties that were hurt, one of which was Merits, which is a left wing party. Right. They missed out. Yes. The other the other one was Balad, the Arab. It's a sort of an right. Arab. It's a Democratic party that says it's committed to democracy and they support a state for all its citizens. But it's generally considered an Arab nationalist party. It's really a question of whether you believe they're more Arab nationalist or more democratic state of all its citizens. But the right. leaders, the leadership is all Arab, even though there can be Jews on their list. I even know a Jewish person who is on their list, but they're, they're, the parts of their list that are realistically likely to enter Knesset are all Palestinian citizens of Israel. And if I remember, Merit's got like five or six seats in the last election, didn't they? In the one before? Yes, they did. They, they did. They had six seats in the last election. It was a very good result for them. Uh, the two left-wing Zionist parties together, Labor and Merit's, although you know, Merritt's now has a different kind of a more qualified understanding of Zionism, but they had 13 seats combined. That is now down to four because wow. Merritt's didn't get in, even though it came close and labor only ended with four seats. So the, the voter threshold is an important issue. In the very beginning of statehood, it was set very low at 1% because the founders thought, you know, we have all these diverse groups in society. We want to make sure they all have their form of expression in the Israeli legislature, in some ways, democratic instincts, you know, and that, and this is the, the kind of contradiction of Israel. There are democratic instincts. There are sufficient democratic institutions, I think, so that we should know better about what's not democratic. But nevertheless, the voter threshold was set low for a commendable purpose to give representation for all the different disparate parts of society. However, uh, Israeli politics has been plagued over the years by instability because of that low threshold. There are many parties we have uh, in government. We have like you know, between often between 25 to 40 parties yeah. running in any one election, often between eight and 13 different parties that enter the Knesset. And so the coalition governments can be very unstable. And over the years, there have been attempts at electoral reform for various reasons. But the main reason I think has been oriented to try to bring some stability to the system. And therefore, it has been incrementally raised over the years. However, the big leap from 2%, or I think it was just 2% to 3.25. That was the biggest incremental leap ever. And that only happened in 2015. Mm -hmm. And that was essentially the initiative of a right-wing leader, Avigdor Lieberman, who's not in the government now because he broke with Netanyahu. But he was hoping that if you um, raise the threshold high enough, the three or four different parties representing Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel wouldn't make the threshold and there would be fewer of them. And instead what they did was combine so they brought their all of their uh, strength right. together and they did they they proceeded to have very good electoral results 
except that when they broke up ahead of the 2019 elections, their public got angry and didn't come out to vote as much. And they've gone up and down, generally depending on how closely they're aligned or are unified together. But um, that's one of the reasons why Ballad went under, because those parties were largely broken up um, in this past election cycle. So this was precisely the purpose, I think, that Lieberman had in mind in 2015. It's an interesting thing. I don't think people have noticed it too much, but he finally got what he wanted, except that he's no longer in the government to enjoy and it. And he's, he's prime minister, which is, what, which is what he's, right. which is what he wants has had actively prevented from happening in, in after I think in two straight elections, right? Well, more than two straight elections. He began taking that position in the first election in this five election cycle. And that was in April, 2019. Uh, so in 2015, you're right. He wanted Netanyahu in power. He, he joined Netanyahu's governments all right. throughout the years. But in 2019 is when he first refused to join his coalition after the election and then became the leader of the basically, you know, the cynics call this the anything but BB block. Anything BB, right. Hey, you, know, BB. you might call it the opposition block, or you might call it the people who are against corruption in government, or people who think BB's been in power for too long, or left wing, uh, or centrist, or people just hate BB. People just hate Netanyahu. Also, people. Well, I mean, I yeah, I mean, I I have argued against, and I've written this. I don't think that I think that the right wing overstates the matter of personal hatred. To the extent that people are very emotionally opposed to Netanyahu, maybe even bordering on hatred, I think that they are against him because of what he's done and his political methods, and the fact that he's corrupt and the fact that he has advanced these kinds of forces in society. I think it's diminishing to the voters to try to portray them as some sort of atavistic, irrational. I don't know. I mean, people people hate Trump not because they maybe I mean dislike him personally. I'm sure many do, but because they dislike his his policy views. I mean, exactly. it's an any. It's a. I mean, the last government you could argue was basically a like we need to get rid of BB government. I mean, right. there are a lot of disparate groups coming together. Right, and I think that we can separate. I mean, I won't mention names, but there was a certain Democratic president whose personality I never was really wild about, but I was a you know complete supporter of that Democratic president because I thought that Democratic president did a pretty good job, and I, I believe that he would do a pretty good job, but I never really was in love with his personality, and I'm not. I'm not going to say anything else. Okay, fair enough. About that. Uh, but let's, okay, we got to finish up. So I want to talk about these yeah. protests. So there, there was 100,000 people out in the streets of Tel Aviv last weekend. Uh, there have been massive protests. What? How important, influential is this? Is it reshaping the politics in Israel? No, it's not reshaping the politics in Israel. I think the only thing we can possibly hope for, um, and I, I am, you know, being quite openly biased against these, you know, attempts to change the the, the judicial system in Israel, Um because I think they're fundamentally about destroying the judicial system in Israel in order to advance a very extreme right-wing and narrow right-wing agenda. So I'm not going to make any bones about that, but I do think that the best the protesters can hope for is that the government will, you know, roll back some of the reforms, maybe give up on some of the, of the challenges that they want to, you know, the legislation they want to advance. And we didn't actually walk through what these are. Are Maybe we walked through some of them, I guess, but I think that the best that protesters can hope for is that they won't take such extreme versions or maybe not all of them will happen or maybe, you know, uh, the the justice minister will be replaced by somebody else. I mean, that's not a particular demand, but I think they're hoping for anything that this government could do to prevent the worst of these reforms from happening. And maybe if they if they really had their greatest wish, um, something that the that the uh, head of the opposition, Yair Lapid, proposed yesterday, which was that the president establish a presidential committee you know, with a variety of figures who would think together about judicial reform in a way that is committed to improving Israel's institutional system rather than advancing a very personalized and and narrow political agenda by destroying the judiciary. And the other opposition figures were not happy about it at all because they saw it as a sort of suggestion of compromise. But I think that's the kind of thing the protesters uh, can hope for. And that's about it because nobody is saying that they reject the election results. And I think the protesters have been very careful to say we accept the election results, we are not pulling a January 6th, we would never give the right wing, we would never even, by the way, if anybody was challenging election results or the transition of power, it was Likud, because, you know, in the elections of 2020, um, they frankly did not want to hold the, the votes that would be needed to uh, replace the speaker of the of the uh, Israeli Knesset or form the committees. Uh, and then, you know, in 2021, when the new government finally established itself, the op- what was then the opposition, but became the new government, they tried to shout down their inaugural speech. I mean, it wasn't exactly January 6th, but these are not exactly, uh, you know, people who are, are expressing support for a peaceful transition of government. Right. Um, and so the protesters are very careful not to do anything like that. And I think they don't really want that, but they do want to try to stop these reforms. Will it help? 
Listen, Netanyahu is a very clever politician. He really has his finger on the pulse of many different arenas um, for mixed metaphors on some level. I mean, he's att attentive to the international community. He's attentive to domestic attitudes. He has sometimes backed down on some of these precise kinds of changes when there was a big public protest, like something that happened in 2017, which most people here don't even remember, but there was suddenly a spontaneous and surprisingly huge demonstration against a law that his cronies were trying to pass that would have made it hard for the police to complete their investigation of him and recommend huh. to the attorney general about his indictment. Nobody remembers this, but I wrote about it. I went to the protests and it was bigger than anybody expected. And essentially the, the legislation passed, but was so whittled down that it was no longer effective. And so he, is he is responsive. He is responsive. He can be responsive because he's always trying to juggle just the right balance of forces to keep himself in power. Right. So the one last thing I want to talk is that I've heard this talk now of of potential civil war, and you've and you've had some rather, I mean, di uh, distressing signs with you know right wing coalition members talking about arresting opposition leaders, about um, having them hanged for treason. I mean, this this feels unusual. Maybe not. I mean, I guess you've always had this kind of. There's always been some of this rhetoric. I mean, certainly. During the Oslo after 93, you had this about, I mean, Rabin, obviously. Um, but how concerned are you about the potential for civil conflict in Israel? I mean, I am concerned, but as a political scientist, you know, there is a long literature on the kinds of factors that are sort of needed to be in place in order to have a civil war. And I don't think we're there. And I don't think yeah. the Israeli society really wants to get there. In fact, you know, Israeli society, for all that it can be very extreme, when it comes to protests within Israel, they tend to be pretty peaceful. Um, relative to, for example, France, where we see protests where there's, you know, widespread vandalism and shops have to barricade themselves. That usually doesn't happen in Israel. There is quite a tradition of peaceful protest, except when it involves Arab citizens. And then security forces have at least twice uh, fired on them directly and killed some. So we have to make that distinction. But the protesters themselves, uh, especially when these mass protests happen, um, they are usually pretty peaceful. So I don't think it will come to that. There has been some extreme rhetoric. I don't know about the rhetoric about hanging, but I will say that it is very alarming, for example, to see the leaders of the coalition just yesterday send practically a, a, a bullying like threat letter to the attorney general based on fake news that she was somehow considering suspending Netanyahu based on some uh, a petition on conflict of interest, uh, which she actually hadn't done and saying, you know, this was such a threatening letter you know, saying we will consider firing you. I mean, that's the extreme version. I don't think it's necessarily going to deteriorate into violence. But a letter like that from the coalition uh, essentially says to supporters who may be more extreme that, you know, uh, we have the moral support of the government to go further. And there have been plenty of violent incidents from individuals in society over the years and recently. And so I think that we, we certainly have seen some forms of violence Again, I don't see it going into fallout civil war, but I do think we're at a very, very precarious time. Last question. Anything America can do to influence this, this conversation? I mean, you've seen, for example, a prominent U.S. senator, Jewish senator from Nevada, Jackie Rosen, saying she would not meet with members of Netanyahu's coalition. Um, does this have any effect at all? Can the U.S. in any way... I mean, should the U.S. be pressuring Israel about this? I mean, there is I think a the U.S. should. You know, I mean, the, the U.S. ambassador here gave an interview and, uh, shortly after the reforms were announced and said, or, or the government was established when it was clear that they were going to be doing this and said, you know, we don't get involved in Israeli domestic politics. But Israeli domestic politics are never really domestic. Israel's borders are not final. The green line doesn't exist. Israel controls millions of Palestinians. We didn't get too into it, but this will have an immediate ramification on their lives. This government is... Com completely committed wall to wall to expanding annexation, right. possibly through legislation, possibly through settlements, to re-legislating laws that allow the theft of private Palestinian land. They're not hiding it. They say it openly every day. So I think America does have a responsibility because America is supporting those policies through its, through, through its aid and its political cover. Um, and so I don't think America should see this as somehow purely an internal issue. Um, and I think the first, the very first thing that Americans should do if they're interested in care and think that this is an important issue is learn the issue. It is a complicated issue. I'm not going to pretend that I have the truth on all things, but I think there's a lot of disinformation going around. Surprised, you may be surprised to hear me say this, but I'm on Alan Dershowitz's side, at least on one thing, because Alan Dershowitz thought this was a very dangerous set of reforms because it would undercut the Israeli judiciary. We come at it from different angles, uh, but you know, his perspective is that Israel was always a great democracy. And I think, as you've heard, that I think Israeli democracy had a lot of vulnerabilities and maybe fatal flaws from the beginning. But, um, you know, learn the issues from people who understand them. 
And I think that it's fair to read the Wall Street Journal and say they got it completely wrong. And that would be a good, a best case scenario, because if they knew what they got wrong and they published anyway, they published anyway, then they're actually being, you know, dishonest. But there's a lot of, you know, battle for the American public mind going on from Israelis of the right and the left trying to convince you. So I think that it, if you really are interested, first thing, learn the issue. But back to your point a second ago about America. I mean, I think we make a distinction between, and maybe Nye's meant, this is Tom Nye's ambassador making making the distinction that there's a difference between, you know, pressuring Israel on judicial reform and also pressuring them on things like expanding settlements or annexing territory that they've long said they would not annex. I, mean, I think it's a, I guess maybe, I don't know, you tell me if you think agree or disagree, that America's on stronger ground criticizing the latter than the former. Maybe on stronger ground because there is issues of international law and America right. has an interest in Israel keeping international law. But remember, the issue of the judiciary is going to basically mean Israel has no constraints on executive power and legislative power. OK, so that puts it in a different category from most from pretty much any other democratic country. Sure. Um, and so to the extent that America has said time and again that it views Israel as a partner to its value system and its political system, sure. you know, you can't really make that claim. And then if that's the reality that America is going to be putting a lot of money and political backing behind a country that is frankly not democratic. Although I think and you probably agree with this, that this administration has no interest in getting involved in these arguments. And they've shown that for two years. They don't really want to play. They don't want to get involved in play politics and they don't want to get involved in Israeli conflict. And they kind of, you know, wash their hands of it to a large degree. I mean, there it's definitely another discussion because there yeah. have been some small moves at different times. But overall, in terms of the general policy, I, I, I don't disagree with that. Yeah, that that is, I mean, and I get it. It's just political. And I I think right. it's two it's, things. I think it's political. I think it's that this guy was Biden was 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 in the Obama administration, saw how well that worked out when Obama right. tried to tried to pressure the two sides. And I think he figures it's not worth my time. Well, this issue is a sinkhole. I mean, the fact is that the yes. Israeli governments ever since 1967, we can go back to 48, it's a different story, but since 1967, every Israeli government, no matter who leads it, has been committed to Israel maintaining its control in some form or other over the occupied territory. No, some more than so, others, we, we, we could say. In, just in different ways. Mm, all more right. or less visible. I trust mean, me I would say don't, this, don't trust me. Invite me back for another Zoom and I'll I would say why. between this government and the Rabin government that existed in 94, 95. But I mean- but the Rabin government was a very short-lived government. I, of course it was. Of course it was. All right, listen, we got to stop. I got I to go on 30. We got a hard stop. This is, we could talk for another hour easily. This I know, awesome. but I have another Zoom coming up too. I, I always love talking to you, Dahlia, and I'm so appreciative that so many of you came to join today, and all of you, I hope, enjoy this if you listen after the fact. Uh, thanks, Dahlia. Thanks for everyone for coming, and My I pleasure. will see you again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening.